Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, invites you to be the informed patient with the podcast that features experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Many, many mysteries remain to be solved about the development and progression of Alzheimer's disease. Today, I'm talking about where things stand with computational neuroscientist Chris Gaiteri. He's an associate professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Upstate and the newest Empire Innovation Scholar, and his research focuses on Alzheimer's. Welcome to The Informed Patient, Dr. Gaiteri. Thanks, Amber. Happy to be here. You're a computational biologist. What does that have to do with curing Alzheimer's? Alzheimer's, what we expect is that we're going to have to process some big data related to the brain. And you're probably more used to hearing big data in the context of large tech companies, but actually we have big data on the brain and Alzheimer's disease. And so you need people like me to do math and statistical processing of that data in order to sort of extract key signals that are actually going to be the things that we're going to need to monitor and, and treat in Alzheimer's disease. So your doctorate is in neuroscience. For the work that you're doing on Alzheimer's, do you team up with medical doctors on your various research projects? Some of my closest colleagues are, are MDs. Some of them see patients. Some of them see patients and do research. Some of them are, are fully in research, but they're great to work with. And I think in general, they're, they're very motivated because a lot of them come from this background of, of just they, they can't handle telling patients there's really very little we can do for you. So that's driven them to research. So they tend to be really highly motivated individuals. And yeah, they're great to work with. Now, in your work, you're searching for what changes happen inside the brain that lead to Alzheimer's. Is that right? Exactly. There are a few big studies that generate a lot of our data. These are studies where older people volunteer, they sign up to be studied and we'll give them cognitive tests every year. We'll monitor things like their diet and their stress levels. And once they pass away, many of these people have volunteered to donate their brains. And so you know, you're exactly right. Once we have those brains and we know the history of these people, we can then look at molecular and cellular things happening inside those brains and compare them between people with Alzheimer's and people without Alzheimer's. For years, we've heard experts blame plaques and tangles as responsible for Alzheimer's. Can you explain to us what those are and whether they play a role at all? Sure. They were discovered about 100 years ago by uh, Lois Alzheimer, uh, who's a doctor that the disease is, is named after. And the plaques are built up of protein that occur outside of your neurons, outside of your brain cells. And the tangles you can picture as pretty much what it sounds like, a tangle of yarn, but that tangle is going to be inside of the cell. And both of these contribute to Alzheimer's disease. In fact, to have Alzheimer's disease, you need to have a, a post-mortem examination of the brain, and you need to find both of these to really have a definitive Alzheimer's diagnosis. A lot of times people will, their doctor will say, oh, you, you have Alzheimer's. That's not actually definitive without this postmortem examination where you actually observe plaques and tangles in the brain. So do the plaques and tangles cause Alzheimer's or are they a symptom of it? When we measure plaques and tangles, they can explain about 30% of the dementia that we observe. They can explain about 30% of cognitive decline. 
So they're clearly an important component, but there's also clearly other things that are leading to dementia, which is what we really care about, right? We don't care how many plaques and tangles you have in your brain. We care, can you function in society? Are you having a, a good life in, in your older years? So they're a component of the cause, but the evidence suggests they're not the entirety of the cause. The, the reason that we're so focused on those has to do with some, some very rare genetic mutations in the genes uh, that lead to plaques and tangles. And in this very rare case, you get a very severe and early form of Alzheimer's disease. So that's really where the focus on them as a cause has come from. But in the broader population, there's clearly uh, many other things which are contributing to causes of dementia. Do you have your own hunches about what is causing dementia? So I have hunches, uh, but they're really they're really driven by data. It's not just that I'm you know pulling strings out of out of the air. We do have some additional mechanisms that uh, we, it's the royal we, um, myself and others are investigating in experimental labs where we'll use CRISPR, we'll use genetic tools to engineer cells um, to model these mechanisms and then see if we can sort of recapitulate Alzheimer's in a dish. That's kind of how we're investigating these new causes. So yes, there, there are some things on the horizon that we're testing that I think are very interesting. So you mentioned genes as a potential cause of some types of Alzheimer's. How often does Alzheimer's run in families? It's very rare for the inevitable form, what we call familial Alzheimer's, to run in families. It's a, it's a very rare situation. Typically in that case, um, you'll have this genetic mutation that essentially guarantees you'll have Alzheimer's disease. And, and that's a very rare situation. When that happens, you get Alzheimer's disease at a significantly younger age, even as early as 50 or slightly younger. Uh, you'll begin seeing symptoms, whereas you know, typically you'll be 65 plus, 75 plus, where you would typically have you know, normal Alzheimer's symptoms, the, the, the general form of Alzheimer's disease. So it's really rare to have this genetic component of, of Alzheimer's disease. However, there are hundreds of genes that give you a little bit of risk. So when we're talking about familial Alzheimer's disease with a strong genetic driver, that's a single genetic mutation that's doing the work there. In general, there is a, a genetic component to Alzheimer's disease, but it's much more distributed across the genome where hundreds of genes are contributing a little bit, which makes it much harder to predict because you have to have to aggregate across the entire genome. And even then, it's a sort of a much fuzzier, uh, more difficult to predict situation. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with computational neuroscientist Chris Gaiteri, the Empire Innovation Scholar in Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. So how did you get into the field of neuroscience? I remember back in high school thinking that I wanted to study something where I would never be bored. And I had this vague idea that the brain sounds pretty complicated. That would be an interesting thing to study for the rest of my life. And uh, that turned out to be true. I'm sure there's many other fields which are also equally interesting. But for me, I wanted something where there'd always be something new. There'd always be something that we don't understand. And uh, neuroscience has turned out to fit that bill. What led you to focus on Alzheimer's? That's somewhat of a more pragmatic issue. Um, I'm interested in treating a variety of mental illnesses and diseases, in particular, the ones that affect society the most, um, that are the most common, that are the most severe. 
And Alzheimer's is is right at the top of the list. And also pragmatically, fortunately, recently there's been a, a large increase in in this disease, so it makes it actually feasible to um, you know study that disease as opposed to some some more rare or neglected diseases where there just there just isn't the funding to actually study them. I'm curious about how you analyze or you look for the genes or proteins or molecules that are responsible for Alzheimer's. You mentioned, you know, some people when they die, they donate their brains to to research. So at some point, someone's working on tissue or blood samples. Um, are there imaging scans involved? I mean, what else is done to help you look for these genes and proteins and molecules? Right. There's definitely tissue involved. Um there's a large freezer farm. I can remember walking through 80 freezers in a long hallway full of, of brains of people who have donated their brains to, to Alzheimer's disease research. So it's really great to have those resources. One thing we have done also, as you suggest, is we give yearly or every other year brain scans to individuals who are in these studies so that after they pass away, we have a really nice three-dimensional um, image of the brain. And we also do fMRIs so we can look at the activity of their brain as well. So combining the activity of the brain with um, gene and protein information is something that I'm really interested in right now because we have the ability to do that because we're scanning people um, you know, relatively soon before they die. And then we have their tissue after they die. So we can actually combine those together, which I think is going to give us a better, more unified more effective kind of practical definition of Alzheimer's disease. Did you first have to learn what brain changes are normal as we age? And is there a consensus in the scientific community about that? That is relevant because while dementia and Alzheimer's are not part of normal aging, you basically almost never see them in younger individuals, right? So there must be something about the aging process that sort of primes the brain or puts it in this position where it can transition into Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, so yes, there are a couple of projects that actually uh, study gene expression prior to getting Alzheimer's disease. Um, but one of the, the real challenges is that you can only get one time point from the same brain. So we'd really like to follow people when they're 40, 45, 50, I would love to have brain samples from the same individual multiple times, but that's simply not possible to obtain. You can't just sample from the brain. So what people will typically do to try to you know, study normal aging and the transition into Alzheimer's is they'll look at blood, specific cells in the blood, or potentially sometimes you can get um, cerebrospinal fluid by doing a spinal tap. Of course, that's somewhat unpleasant to do. So it's, it's difficult to obtain that kind of data from the same person over time. So what we have to do is sort of a cross-sectional design where we look at many, many people sampled at one point of time. But it, it really does make it difficult to do the sort of study that you're talking about where we study, you know, normal aging and the transition into Alzheimer's disease. Do you have any ideas about whether inflammation plays a role in the development or the progression of Alzheimer's? Yeah, inflammation has really been a recent sort of star of Alzheimer's research. Back in 2010, when they've done, started doing some really large genetic studies of Alzheimer's disease, multiple uh, genes that were related to microglia, sort of a major inflammatory cell type in the brain, showed genetic variations that were associated with Alzheimer's disease. Um, in particular, there's one called TREM2, where they found in this Icelandic population, which is a really sort of genetically isolated group, 
Um, you could have a mutation in this inflammatory gene that gave you reduced your likelihood of having Alzheimer's disease by you know a third, which is a, a big effect for a single mutation. So there's there's a lot of strong genetic evidence, and genetic evidence is very strong um, for involvement in Alzheimer's disease. There are several drugs on the market that help people with symptoms of Alzheimer's. So I'm curious about how helpful those are. I'm thinking of medications like Aricept that supposedly support communication between nerve cells. Does that really work? We'd really like a drug that would strike at the causal basis of the disease, that would shut down the process that's, that's causing the disease or contributing to the disease. And like you say, these are more about limiting some of the symptoms. So you can have diverse symptoms in Alzheimer's disease. I mean, other than memory loss, you can have you know, agitation and psychosis. You can have a variety of sort of psychiatric symptoms, uh, depression that go along with Alzheimer's disease. So these drugs are more focused at sort of suppressing some of those things, which is which is great. Um, but at the same time, they're not that much more effective than placebo, and it's also fairly common to have some unpleasant side effects from these drugs as well. So I think for those reasons, you know, that's that's why when someone comes in to clinic with Alzheimer's disease, um, certainly worth a shot in many cases, but that's why we're not particularly excited to be prescribing these drugs. The FDA narrowly approved a drug called Aduhelm that's designed to remove amyloid from the brain. It was sort of a controversial move, and it's a very expensive drug. What do you know about that and how well it's working? Yeah, you mentioned it was controversial. And, and what happened was there's a committee of scientists that advised the FDA on their perception of the evidence for drugs. And usually that committee of scientists and the FDA um, are, are very much in sync. Um, the three very famous scientists resigned from that committee after the committee recommended against the drug and the FDA approved it. Um, so that's unusual. And uh, I think it signals some of the concerns about the, the cost benefit analysis for the drug, not just in terms of the monetary cost, but in terms of some concerns about uh, side effects that the drug has. So on the one hand, it's, it's great to be having new drugs approved for Alzheimer's disease. Um, that's, that's what we want, right? But on the other hand, it would be better if, if they had larger effects and uh, weren't so controversial and it wasn't so much of a close call. Do scientists think that if we had a drug that removed the amyloid or the plaques and tangles we talked about earlier, would that fix the problem or not? Right. Uh, so these drugs do remove them. Part of the issue is, though, perhaps they're removing them too late. Um, and so perhaps we need to be intervening earlier in the disease and therefore preserving some of the synapses, some of the connections between nerve cells. Um, so that's been sort of the rejoinder to some of the weaker clinical results is maybe this is the right thing, we're just not delivering it soon enough. Um, and so that's why in a lot of our clinical trials, they're focused on people with MCI, with mild cognitive impairment, which is often sort of a precursor to full-blown dementia. The idea being that that may be a more fruitful time for these interventions. Researchers are still trying to figure out and agree on the cause of Alzheimer's disease, obviously. I wonder if you have theories about what determines whether Alzheimer's progresses rapidly or slowly in the individual. So there are a number of factors that can make you resilient to Alzheimer's disease, 
meaning that for the same amount of plaques and tangles that someone, you know, um, might have, you're actually doing better um, than, than they are. And so the question is, you know, that's sort of a, a factor that would slow the progression of the illness. It would give you a slower rate of decline. And so what are those things? And yes, we actually have published papers on what these factors are and we're doing experiments on them because um, there is a lot of variability in terms of the outcomes of having plaques and tangles, in terms of having classic Alzheimer's disease in your brain. And so uh, if we can essentially give everyone a really slow decline uh, as opposed to a really fast decline, uh, that would be that would be wonderful. And, and there is that kind of natural variability in, in the human population. So that is one thing we're studying. Alzheimer's is just one type of dementia. Do you think your work might shed light on other types of dementia as well? I hope so. Uh, it would be great to have communication across the across the discipline. Um, it can be challenging, though. So, for instance, with traumatic brain injury, which can lead to dementia, a lot of times it really depends sort of exactly the physics of how a particular brain has been impacted. Um, you know, so each case, to an extent, is somewhat sort of unique. And so even within that class of injuries, it's difficult to draw some universal conclusions. And so then to draw universal conclusions you know, between classes of diseases can be challenging, but it's it's certainly something that we should try to lever if we can to to work together and, and draw some robust conclusions. Do you see similarities between dementias and other brain disorders? You mentioned traumatic brain injury. Uh, yes, uh, there are some similarities. A lot they won't be full blown similarities though. By what by what I mean is, for instance, you could have inflammation being involved in in multiple brain diseases. But we know that inflammation is probably just a, one component of Alzheimer's disease, and there'll be additional components of Alzheimer's disease. So I feel like there's selective ways in which we can learn about disease mechanisms across brain diseases. We can import knowledge from a specific domain and, and use that, even if we can't import uh, the entire sort of conceptualization of the disease. There's always you know, spots where we can learn. You mentioned how you work with big data and you're sort of focused on the cause of Alzheimer's or the treatments for it. Might there be big data that could let us look at possible preventives for Alzheimer's? Yes, um, I think that's very important to do because it's likely going to be easier to prevent a disease than to reverse a disease. And I think the public's particularly interested in for something preventative for Alzheimer's disease. So it makes sense to the public to write in particular, they're interested and, you know, is there something in my diet that I can eat, you know, that seems readily available that's going to sort of prevent Alzheimer's disease? And so I think that's that's pointing to some of these uh, studies that are coming out recently about um, the Mediterranean diet. Uh, you know, a lot of times people have shown that you have lower rates of dementia and people who have certain diets, uh, but you never know if it's just due to genetics or the environment or actually what the people are eating. So there's some studies now where they actually do interventions um, where they specifically, you know, ask people to eat more of a certain type of food and they they verify that the person is in fact eating their broccoli or whatever the intervention is. Um, and so I think those studies are going to be quite interesting in terms of uh, prevention for, for Alzheimer's disease. The field of study you've chosen is just fascinating. I wonder, have you discovered anything that was totally shocking to you about Alzheimer's? Well, a number of years ago, there was... Uh, this wasn't my finding, this is research by, by other individuals, but this finding that plaques and tangles cannot account for a majority of the dementia that we observe in, in people with Alzheimer's disease. 
And so I, I think on the one end, it's discouraging that plaques and tangles are probably not enough. But on the other hand, they've been so difficult to treat that it's, it's really nice to know that there's this unknown cause of dementia out there, and maybe that's going to be easier to treat. And so that's, that's one of our major focuses is trying to nail down what exactly is that signal, right? We, we measured it. We have cognitive tests from people you know, with Alzheimer's disease. We have their brains after they die. So it, it is possible to actually find molecular causes related to this uh, dementia that's not accounted for by plaques and tangles. And so going after that is, is really sort of exciting. And it's it's been a little bit shocking how big of a, an issue that is. Uh, but at the same point, I'm, I'm really happy to be going after something that important. Well, Dr. Gaiteri, I really appreciate you making time to tell us about your work. Thank you. My pleasure. My guest has been computational neuroscientist Chris Guiteri. He's an associate professor and Empire Innovation Scholar in Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and produced by Jim Howe. Find our archive of previous episodes at upstate.edu informed. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.